0: I think it's important to be grounded in one's identity and speak to it to validate a point where it gets a little tricky is if you're not open to understanding that there might be a multiplicity of experiences and opinions, if you are not open to understanding that your one way of looking at it might be narrow at some level. So I think a lot of that is about self-growth and self-analysis and self-reflection that everyone has to do, including organizers and movement leaders, regardless of how urgent the situation
1: is that's in front of us. Hello, friends. My name is Gibran Rivera. I'm a facilitator, and this is my podcast. Here, I'm bringing you into a conversation with remarkable leaders who are devoting their lives to the evolution of consciousness and culture. In this episode, I introduce you to my friend, the author Deepa Ayer. Deepa is an activist and a thought leader committed to real solidarity work. I have been blessed and lucky to work with her over the last five years in the Solidarity Summit series. And in this episode, you'll learn about the building blocks of solidarity and about the importance of working together, even as we hold many different perspectives. It is a good episode. I can't wait for you to hear it. And I can't wait for you to get to know Deepa. Deepa, how are you? It is so good to have you on the podcast. I've been looking forward to this.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Gibran. It's a real honor.
1: Yes, I'm very, very excited for this conversation and for uh, my listeners to get to know you better. um, I want to talk a little bit about all the ways in which we know each other. and Maybe you can fill them out further for me. But if I remember correctly, I met you at a Ford Foundation thing huh. back in, like, 2008. Um, It was Bonnie Jenkins right. doing something on engaging unheard voices in foreign policy. You were the executive director of SALT at the time. Am I correct?
0: I was. Yes, you have a fabulous memory. That is right. I do remember that meeting.
1: And, um, uh, well, that was a big, like breakthrough facilitation moment for me. Oh,
0: really? Is that it right?
1: Was like, it was like my, my really big client, like uh, oh. in terms of like to go into a foundation as a client. And uh, it, it, so uh, that's why I remember it so well. Okay. Because it was like a moment, yeah. you know, and, and, and you were there. You were there.
0: Yeah.
1: And um, over the last couple of years, we've been collaborating on the Solidarity Summit series, which I'm sure we'll get into as well.
0: That's great. Yes.
1: Uh, but, I would rather give you a, ch- a chance to tell us how you define your work, what you're doing, what you're excited about, and then we can circle back around to the ways in which we're collaborating.
0: Yeah, definitely. Well, um, wow, that that was a long time ago. I'm glad that you <laughs> reminded us of it. Um, so I would say that I am a movement uh, strategist, a facilitator, um, and A media creator in different ways. Um, So my work has taken, uh, I think, a lot of different shapes over the past two decades. Um, But I've been trained as a lawyer and primarily worked at Asian American and South Asian American organizations that do civil rights work. And as you mentioned, I uh, served as a director of SALT, South Asian Americans leading together for a decade, um, which we founded and shaped uh, in the post 9-11 moment when our communities were going through a lot of harm. Um, I left SALT in 2014, and since then, I have been doing a range of things. I wrote a book on post 9-11 America. I have also been, um, organizing a, um, as you mentioned, um, a project around multiracial solidarity. And part of that has been these summits that we have been, um, co-facilitating and, and working on together. Um, I also, uh, work on a rapid response project that looks at how Muslim, Arab, and South Asian communities are um, being targeted in this current moment in our country, and how we can respond to defend our communities and protect our communities. Uh, so that's a range of the work that I do uh, in terms of um, strategizing, facilitating training, as well as writing and advocating. There's no sadly, there's no one word that describes it. Beautiful. So I always, so I always end <laughs> up being. Um, uh, you know, having to explain
1: it in a long way, so I apologize for that. Yeah, no, I I am very very familiar with the with how challenging it is to describe <laughs> what we do, and as far as the people listening yeah. are concerned, I I just think of you as a as somebody that's committed their lives to the evolution of consciousness and culture. See, you
0: said it a lot better.
1: Right, <laughs> <laughs> right when it matters, right when it matters mm. most. You know, this idea. Of multiracial solidarity, right? At a, in a moment, in a historical moment, to when virulent, virulent mm-hmm. uh, white supremacy is expressed all the ways to the, the top of our government, yeah. right? Uh, it, it, it is such a moment in which the the, the very pillars that, that 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 the country has been founded on is like are like shaking, and to have uh, to get to talk to somebody that's deciding to like engage that directly, I think is it, it, exciting mm. and quite an honor for me. So thank you.
0: Thank you.
1: Thank you for your work. And so there's so many things I want to ask you about, <laughs> but can you talk a little bit, can you describe one more layer of this multiracial solidarity yeah. uh, work, which is it's the point in which we intersect, but how, how could somebody, how could a lay person understand that better?
0: Yeah, well, I think the one thing to keep in mind is that we've always engaged in some form of solidarity practice as human beings, you know, whether it's helping out a neighbor or um, writing a letter to the editor or showing up for another community. But I think in this particular moment, as you mentioned, multiracial solidarity is um, really critical and vital. And so what does it look like? Um, In the movement arena, what it looks like is that One, communities understand each other's histories and their unique experiences as people of color, as immigrants, as indigenous people in the United States. And then secondly, that we break out of our silos. I think in many ways, and I think this is part of white supremacist culture, we in movement spaces, organizational spaces are just working with these blinders on. We're working for our cause, we're working for our ex community, we're working in this area. And because of this feeling of scarcity and under-resourced communities, we're not really able to make the connections between our communities. So the simple thing is that when we use solidarity as a strategy, we can win. We can build power for our communities. We can learn about each other in a much deeper way than in a superficial manner. Um, So it's really about what are our shared values? What are our goals? How do we make change for all of us? Um, to make sure that we have a more equitable community and society.
1: That's great. That is beautiful. I I know that from the work that we do together with at Solidarity Summit, one of the things that we talk about a lot is how um, there is anti-Blackness, right, among migrant groups, mm-hmm. and there's Islamophobia among Black people, right? And there is uh, anti-migrant concerns among, you know, it's like all of us hold... The same prejudices against each other, even right. though they're being wielded against us, right? And I yes. think uh, that that I, I I often see your work at, at trying to sift
0: mm-hmm. to
1: sift through that so that we can actually stand together, right, for something for something greater.
0: Absolutely, yeah. And I think part of it is that um, we're not we're very good at I think this transactional solidarity, right? So. I'll come to your rally and you can sign on to my statement. Uh, We do that well. But what is harder is some of this work that you mentioned, where there are tensions between communities. So, for example, if there is um, anti-Black racism within South Asian or Asian American communities, that can then prevent these communities from standing together on, say, police brutality or immigration. So part of solidarity work is actually the messiness of it is what is key. It is messy. It is discordant. It doesn't make sense all the time. And it is very long term Mm -hmm. because it's about trust building and relationship building and learning about each other. And so um, part of it is actually undoing what you said, these uh, biases and these assumptions that we are holding against each other because they're also tearing us apart. And making it easier for systemic racism to actually wield itself against all of us.
1: That is uh, that is so powerful and so relevant. I, what is coming to my mind is just yesterday by chance I was talking to a dear friend of mine and thought partner. Her name is Cindy Suarez. She's she's the first person I interviewed on this podcast actually, and oh. she's got a, another book out, uh, a, or a good book out called the The Power Manual. But but I digress. She was talking just yesterday to me about um, looking at solidarity and looking at movements and and looking at Poland, right? Where like Mm. the Poland, the Polish uprising was called solidarity, right? Like that, that was, that is the movement. And, and one of the things that she said and and, and that I wanted to ask you about is that, you know, like you said, it was long-term, but that new norms were formed every step of the way, right? That. Mm. That people started to come together in ways that were different from what was sanctioned, right, uh, under the kind of Polish Soviet regime, right, and mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and some of it included remembering things from before that, right, but but this establishment of new norms of kind of cre- creating an almost its own subculture. Was integral mm-hmm. to the development of something new, and I'm wondering if that's something that that, that you see uh, in the work that you're doing.
0: Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Because I think that in one way we are all looking for this big win, right? Like we get rid of the Muslim ban, or we pass, you know, immigration legislation that is equitable and fair, and those are big wins. Um, but as you mentioned, there are a lot of immediate changes that actually reflect how we interact with each other, the dynamics between organizations and movement leaders. And so, some of those changes that I've seen, which create these new norms, is, uh, for example, um, instead of making an assumption about an organization, to literally pick up the phone and make a call. So simple, right? <laughs> so simple. But it's something that we don't we don't do because it's easier to send out a tweet. To say something negative, um, or to, before you weigh in on an issue, to actually think and ask yourself how could my position on, um, you know, asylum seekers at the border affect people who are also seeking temporary protected status, right? Asking like these multiple layers of questions because oftentimes we tend to compromise on policy issues because we have the siloed approach. So some of the smaller changes with the new norms that you've talked about that I've seen is this relationship building, thinking very deeply about how certain issues can affect multiple communities, not just your own, and making clear decisions based on that analysis. Um, Even communities coming into relationship with each other that they wouldn't necessarily do normally. So um, town halls where you have, you know, Muslim and um, um, Black communities come together, South Asian Muslim communities and Black Muslim communities, for example, coming together, or um, conversations around anti-Black racism in Asian American communities, even things like that that I think don't ne- necessarily happen when you're in the midst of a campaign. These are the small, um, but I think transformative new norms that you mentioned that really shape the dynamics of how we interact.
1: That's awesome. That's cool. I love. I love the very specific things, right? Like, instead of doing this, do this, right? I think sometimes people yeah. we get into like the philosophical aspects of like, let's all be together. Let's all like, but but it, this idea of like, pick up the phone when you're making an <laughs> assumption about our, an organization,
0: mm-hmm.
1: it can get it, it can get us so much farther, right? It it, it, it I want to get into the because I I feel like it gets to the human part. And, and I'm really curious and interested in in the human part of this work, right? Like I, I, I think your ideas are brilliant. Your book is awesome, right? And I want to know more about the spirit and the person behind it. Mm-hmm. But I think a way into it um, might be by asking about the rapid response work because I feel like that work is so important, but it can be so taxing to, yeah. to the well-being of the intervener. So, give me a couple of words about what that work looks like, and then and then we'll we'll talk more about how you survive in it. You know.
0: Yeah. No. Thank you. Um, you know, I think it's typical frontline responder work. So it's that moment where you mobilize, where yeah. you uh, see a, an issue or a problem, and you make an intervention. And oftentimes, you have to think on your feet. You have to marshal a lot of networks and resources together and make quick decisions. Um, and it's also very taxing, as you said, because it's connected to people that I care about
1: deeply. Well, you were the first person that I heard from uh, after outside of the news um, from after El Paso.
0: Mm.
1: Like you, you know what I mean. Like the email from you was the first kind of comprehensive thing that landed on my desk. Um, so, so that means you gotta be, you kind of gotta to hear those news, withstand the human impact of them, and then kind of turn around and, and do something useful with it. Um, how, do, how does your spirit handle that?
0: Yeah. Um, you know, I think I have gotten better at it using some techniques. Um, it, mm-hmm. was, it, it took me some time to recognize that I was actually really absorbing the weight of the direct and vicarious trauma of the post 9-11 environment. And for me, that moment came actually in 2012 when there was a massacre at a Sikh place of worship in um, right outside Milwaukee that I'm sure your listeners have all heard about um, at the the Sikh temple there. And when that happened, um, I realized I was experiencing a lot of things. You know, I was experiencing numbness I was experiencing a sense of uh, fear. I was experiencing exhaustion, but at the same time, I was working throughout it. Sure. Right? I was. I went down to the community. I helped put out press releases. I talked to community members. I talked to survivors. Um, and my book actually begins with a chapter on that community. Um, so I also though realized in intervening years that. Um, I wasn't actually withstanding the impact. And so I left uh, my organization for a range of reasons, but that was one of them as well. But how I would stand it now (laughs) is that I've actually, um, I know this might sound a little bit odd, but I've come to terms with the fact that um, I am uh, decently good at being a frontline responder and that it is part and parcel of my. Set of skills, and I've also come to terms with understanding that um, I have to come in and out of it and that I don't have to always be the one responding. So, I've identified mm-hmm. groups of people who are all in that same kind of position and they can take on the lead, make a statement, put together a list of resources, etc. So, um, understanding that the weight of it doesn't have to, you know, I don't have to feel responsible alone, that there's a community of people I can connect with and um, that I have to come in and out of it has really
1: helped That's powerful. I love, I love uh, what I'm hearing underneath what you're saying. And it's part of a personal bias, but um, uh, the whole idea that whatever the problem community is the answer. Yes. (laughs) That's so true. You're relying on others, right? You're doing, you're doing things together. Um, And so Deepa, am I right to, to know that to think that you came from India. Like you weren't born in the mainland United States. No,
0: I moved
1: here yeah. when I was 12. that's that's you know, I moved here at that same age.
0: I know, I know. Every we time you here. say that, I think, oh yes, me too.
1: What a what a tough, what a tough time to move. I um, feel like you're not quite a kid, awful. you're quite a teenager. It's a whole thing. You're story. an adolescent. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
0: I moved and I moved to you moved to Boston, right? Yes.
1: So I moved to Kentucky. Okay, okay. Um, okay. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I want to hear about that. I, I mean, just to pro, just to be correct, I we moved to Western Massachusetts, but it was still Massachusetts. You know what I mean? And there yeah. were, you know, there was such a thing as being Puerto Rican. It wasn't well looked upon. There was, you know, there was an immediate feeling mm-hmm. of being other and being seen as bad or as less than, for sure. Hard yeah. to adjust to, but I'm wondering. What was it like to be a 12-year-old brown girl in Kentucky?
0: It was, um, it was probably as uh, difficult as you could imagine it to be, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that for me, I immediately felt like I was an outsider, you know, having been in a country where everyone looked like me and spoke the same language as I did and had, you know, similar cultural experiences um, to being in a place where I was literally an outsider. Um, I had a very thick accent and so I spent a lot of time trying to, uh, eliminate it. Um, you know, just like many immigrant children went through a lot of bullying and teasing, um, at school, uh, didn't feel like I was connected to a community at all. And there was a very small community here in Louisville where, you know, Indian Americans were slowly kind of settling, but it was very, very small. Um, so it was a, it was a feeling of isolation and mm-hmm. exclusion and it definitely informed, I think a lot of my future, um, ideas and, and viewpoints.
1: I want, I'm definitely want to pick up that thread and I got to confess, I, I did wonder about your accent and lag like thereof, right? Oh, because really? I feel like By the time you're 12, your accents can be etched in place, right? And it looks like, it sounds like, like you managed to way out of it somehow. Um, You know, I was in Louisville for the first time uh, earlier this year doing some work with artists there. I was there for uh, the Rolling Thunder, which I didn't know... I didn't know I was going to be there for that, but I guess it's the biggest fireworks yeah. thing in, in, in yes. the nation. Yes. <laughs> so, no, it's, yeah, it's
0: yeah. a, you know, the community has really changed um, over the years and it's very different now than it was in the mid 80s. It's a lot more diverse. There's a lot of activism in the community as well. Um, but certainly, you know, um, it, 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 it was a difficult place to grow up if you are a brown skinned girl with an accent and um, uh, you know, different immigration status and all of that. Um, but my parents still live there.
1: <laughs> yeah, so you get back. Of course. Um, and so did you go, did you kind of leave Louisville to go to school and well, do you have social justice, uh, in your mind already, or did you kind of come up on that later?
0: I would say that it wasn't necessarily as fully fledged, you know, and fully formed. I think that I was really interested in community formations. So even when I went to college, mm-hmm. um, you know, I helped to start the first Indian American Students Association on the campus and served in various offices with that organization because I really understood the importance of coming together and um, having a community of people where we could connect with each other. I also um, was really, uh, you know, I went to Vanderbilt University, which in Nashville, Tennessee, which is a very, um, you know, at the time was not very diverse. And so got involved with campus efforts on diversity in the curriculum and the faculty and the like. So I wouldn't necessarily say I wouldn't have called those things social justice. But to me, they were about equity and fairness and opportunity and community And I think that those values have stayed with me.
1: And did you move from there into our sort of work, or do you kind of go into some kind of professional field?
0: No, I was very, yeah, I mean, I was pretty, I I wish that I had done, you know, what they do now, like gap years and things like that. But no, I just went straight to law school. And, uh, you know, and then I started practicing law and then found myself into the nonprofit sector very quickly, um, primarily working with Asian American civil rights organizations.
1: You know, I'm going to ask you a question and you can um, you can kind of check me or guide me if it's not appropriate. Um, but I know from talking to my other Asian friends, whether they be East Asian or South Asian, um, they grapple a lot with kind of how both how they're perceived by dominant culture as well as how their own community is self-conceived, right? So... So, so, so you are people of color, right, uh, for sure. Mm-hmm. And you're certainly othered, right, but often seen as kind of more mm-hmm. better behaved minorities, if you will. Or sometimes your own communities have a stronger, a more clearly defined right wing, right? Or, or this kind of thing where I know from being in community mm-hmm. with you, you hold a certain set of values that really can't be assumed of like salvation, oh. people, um, and I'm wondering if you can elucidate that for me. If I'm incorrect, yeah. or if you can help me. No, I think
0: you're, I think that there's a sense that um, Asian Americans are sort of the model minority in this country. That there's a level of exceptionalism, right? And we see that, for example, when you think of how um, everything from like spelling bee champions who invariably turn out to be South Asian every single year. Uh, to Silicon Valley entrepreneurs. Um, So there is this sense of, uh, well, this is a community that doesn't need any assistance. This is a community that, you know, um, uh, makes its way regardless of being othered or being immigrants. And I think that part of the um, real dilemma with that is number one, it's not true, right? It masks a lot of the disparities and inequities within our communities on a range of reasons. And um, that's one of the most important uh, things, I think, to remember, that Asian Americans, like any other community, are dealing with levels of poverty, um, education access, uh, job training, healthcare access, you name it, right? Mental health issues. Um, and then secondly, this goes back to our solidarity conversation, that this idea of exceptionalism with Asian Americans is really a racial wedge, because what it says mm-hmm. is... Hey, um, it, what the message is actually to black and Latinx people to say, well, look, um, if Asian Americans can make it and if they're the successful, what what about you? What's wrong with you? Why do you need affirmative action? Why are you asking for any sort of assistance right? And so um, so what we have been able to do, I think, and this is longstanding is really make sure that we unpack this model minority myth And make sure that people outside of our communities, as well as people inside, because there are people inside who perpetuate it too, um, don't use it. Don't use this idea of exceptionalism, that we're different or better or superior, because it really does create these fissures between us and other communities of color.
1: Powerful, powerful Um, and important. It, it, It is really interesting the way the way these wedges are built, you know what I mean? And, 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 mm-hmm. and also like the other fact, the other thing, which, you know, I was talking to Rinko about this, mm-hmm. when we were last together, actually, um, how we also want to be careful with essential, essentializing people, right? Like sometimes to build, even to build solidarity or to create, a, or to articulate a political stance, we might, Say this is what it means to be Latinx, right? As if it's something essential. Forgetting that, right? You know, thirty percent of Latinos voted for Trump, even though he came out the wow. gate calling us rapists, right? Like, wow. mm-hmm. it, so there's a, it, I think there's something important to hold in these complexities, even as we bring identity to the mm-hmm. to the fore, to really understand that, you know essentializing any of us is, is, is actually a disservice to, to what we're trying to, absolutely to achieve, agree. which is fully human together. You yeah. Know?
0: And, and like you said, there's a tremendous diversity within our communities around all sorts of lines. And to say, this is a, the South Asian voice, or this is the Latinx voice or um, opinion, right, is really a disservice. Um, and we have to be really careful with
1: the language that we use. And, and then you and I have been in plenty of spaces together, and, and I'm sure not together, where somebody will start any statement with, as a Latinx person, da 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 You know, as a. Right. Which is, I think, I think it's, it's both a valid stance, but also
0: mm-hmm.
1: want to like be able to poke holes at because at the same, you know, on the one hand, we're saying, don't ask me to hold the opinion for all of my people. On the other hand, we're saying, hey, this is the opinion of all of my people. It's an interesting thing that we do.
0: Yeah, I think, so I I agree. I mean, I think it's important to be grounded in one's identity and to use, you know, utilize that and speak to it, um, to validate a point or to acknowledge something that is happening. I think where it gets a little tricky is if you're not um, open to understanding that there might be a multiplicity of experiences and opinions. And if you are not open to um, understanding that, you know, your one way of looking at it um, might be narrow at some level. So um, I think a lot of that is about self-growth and self-analysis and self-reflection that everyone has to do, including organizers and movement leaders, regardless of how urgent the situation is that's in front of us.
1: That's exactly right. The crisis that's in front of us. Um, Deepa, one of the things that keeps coming to mind at a... you know, uh, I think there's probably a way to put the, the PDF in the show notes. Okay. There's this chart that you've been using that points to the different kind of archetypes. In, mm. uh, <laughs> uh, is it an organizing archetypes or is it movement archetypes? The role. that has like the heel. Yeah. The, can you can you describe that a little bit for us? Because I I think that is so useful, and I actually seen it. Um, see other people sharing it. I'm like, hey, I know I know the person behind that.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel like it's a pretty simple description of the roles, the various roles that we see in our movement ecosystems. Um, but I agree that maybe the simplicity of it has uh, people, people have resonated with it and they use it, which I'm really happy with. But basically it goes through various roles that people um, play, right? So we talked about, in my sense, Um, that I tend to play the role of the frontline responder, um, that that's something that I do. Um, But there are others, of course, who play the role of healers or bridge builders. Um, There are people who are um, organizers or who are caregivers to a movement. You know, maybe you're somebody who actually doesn't get involved in the rally, but you're bringing water to the organizers who are, right? So you're a caregiver in that way. Um, So it just um, identifies these various buckets or many more than the ones that I wrote up. Uh, but it identifies these various buckets. And I think the point of it is that we don't have to play all these roles, that even if the moment is urgent and the crisis is really clear, that we don't have to play every single role and that we can actually um, map out who is part of our ecosystem, right? So, um, and, and I mentioned that earlier for me, it's been really important to understand that while I see myself as a frontline responder, there are other people in my ecosystem that I can lean on. Um, So the point is, how do you see yourself? Where do you want to maybe uh, move into, learn more about, become? um, And who else is part of this movement ecosystem? Who else is playing other roles? So it's a way to reflect and analyze yourself as well as um, an organization or a group of people that you're working with.
1: Awesome. And did you see... Do you see some roles that are overplayed and some roles that are underplayed There's, as a general? I mean, it doesn't have to be like a, a scientific take, but it, mm. in the spaces that you're in, are there, are, 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 does it seem well balanced or are people uh, all doing one more of one thing?
0: That is a really good question. Um, I think that when I have used this exercise with various groups, what I see is a dearth of maybe storytellers and artists right? Uh-huh. They exist, of course, but they might not be connected to our movements in the ways that they could be. Um, so there is a siloing effect there. Um, I also see a dearth of people who are healers. Um, so people who are able to actually talk about and attend to the trauma that folks might be facing in an ecosystem. Um, so I think that's an excellent question. I, I, and and I would say that, of course, like we need more people playing all of these roles, but those are two arenas where I've seen a bit of a gap.
1: You know, I, I asked you the question um, with the intention of digging into the healer bit, especially knowing that we both see so much trauma in the work that, that we're doing. But uh, but mm-hmm. I do want to pause and and before we go there and ask about the storytellers. Mm. Um, and I'll tell you where my question is coming from, which is, there's a lot of like narrative work going on right now, right, from like a communications yeah. perspective, which I don't think is a bad thing, and I do think more people are claiming to do it than, than I actually know how to do it. But that's we don't need to go there. Mm-hmm. Um, but but story, when I think about storytelling now, and I'm I'm just wondering where you are with it. Um, you know, I think a lot of I think of ourselves mm-hmm. as ancestors in training.
0: Mm-hmm. You always say
1: that. I th- and I think I think that a lot, like a big reason why we end up where we are societally uh-huh. is because we have forgotten the ancestors, right? And so if you forget the ancestors, then you become the first society on the planet to steal from your descendants, right? Because right? you, you forget that you're part of a thread. Um, and so the ancestors carry stories, right? Stories for how to survive when things get rough, right? Stories for how to be a good human being. Stories for how to take Mm -hmm. care of each other. Um, Stories for how not to create a culture that is rich with loneliness, right? Even though it's also rich with stuff, right? And and I'm just wondering, when you say storytellers, are you talking about what I just said? Are you talking about narrative strategies? Are you talking about something in between? Yeah, no,
0: I'm not actually talking about narrative strategists um, and people who are doing like communications polls and testing them. Um, I'm actually talking about people who remember the histories of our communities and can share them. I'm talking about people who can um, uh, use storytelling as a way to um, manifest what has happened to our communities and what is still happening to our communities. So it's very, so it's more of an artist um, than a strategist. Um, and I do nice. agree with you that that's really missing. I, I mean, I think that storytellers and artists exist and they you know, cultural workers exist, obviously, right? But I think that connection between how they're integrated into our movement spaces, our movement decision-making it, or organizations um, happens just once in a while. It's not something that's actually connected as it should be.
1: Yeah, I you know, I've been for many years facilitating and I just came back from facilitating creative change because this mm-hmm. was the tenth one, a, a gathering of artists and activists at at Sundance, and mm-hmm. a mantra that's often spoken there is, you know, we don't want you to just call us like make a poster for your campaign. You know, we want to be mm-hmm. part of the strategy, right? We want we want to help you think about what a cultural intervention looks like. Mm. Um, you know, I, I I appreciate your concern with with. Artists, cultural workers, storytellers—I share it. I think that there is a medicine there that is a uh, that is really missing um, in in right. a lot of the spaces that we're in, and even how we think about these spaces. Um, and I know also want to get into the healers piece, and and I hear I I know actually it, it wouldn't be fair to name anyone that we're in community with, but we have ended up being, we have been blessed to work in spaces with amazing artists, I mean, I, not artists, amazing mm. activists, right, that are leading the, the, some of the more important and relevant movements of our time. And we have both been also witness to, to how tired they can get, to how, mm-hmm. how exhausted, how even you know, for lack of a better word, traumatized, right? How, like, mm-hmm. burnt out. Um, and I know that so, so we'll be, like, facilitating something or, or designing something, and we just have to pause and account for what a big deal it is for these people to even get on a plane and come see us and mm. be together or how to create space for them to just relax or, you know, these are things that we got to wrestle with yeah. because because there's something about how we're doing the work that is killing us. And 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 we could easily say there's something about our time, our historic time that is killing us. Mm-hmm. I think that is also true. I'm not trying to deny that. But 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 there is a dearth of healers and a and a lot of need for healing and for medicine. Yeah. And I'm just wondering how are you coming at that right now?
0: Yeah. So I think part of it is actually to acknowledge what you just said and to acknowledge yeah. that it exists. Um, so I recently also um, wrote something around movement culture and some of the characteristics in movement organizations that we see around this um, this push towards productivity, right? Like produce, produce, produce. So you're constantly working to meet all these metrics that are set by philanthropy. Um, or, you know, other accountability partners, um, there is this sense of um, personality, you know, the cult of personality that I think has emerged even in our organizational spaces and our movements. So the number of Twitter followers you have and the way that you're showing up on social media has become so important because you're a quote influencer now, right? Um, But then who are you accountable to? who's informing your ideas, right? And you then speak for an entire movement, sort of what we spoke about already. Um, And then this idea of purity, movement purity, where, you know, if you are not fully woke, you don't have your woke credentials from the moment you step into an organization or in a facilitation space, that you feel like something is wrong with you. Um, You know, cancel culture, call out culture, um, all of that, I think, is a consequence of this kind of um, idea of movement purity. Um, so I think these, these trends, along with um, the urgency of the moment, along with the fact that we are in rapid response crises, cycles, um, and the under-resourcing of our causes and our organizations really leads to um, a place where people are traumatized and people are hurt and people are fatigued. And people need to heal. Um, so that that so I think it's yeah. important to kind of think about what causes the um, you know what what is causing the situation. What are the roots of it? And then, of course, how do we attend to folks that are in movement spaces?
1: That's that you just opened up so much, and I know this is a place where you and I uh, have met and have wrestled with not with each other so much, but with it uh, together. Um, mm-hmm. So I want to, I want to get into the causes. I'm just wondering though, what we are in it. Um, have you seen any, anything working at the level of healing and restoration for people?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that- I have, you
0: know, I think so. I think part of it. Yeah. I think part of it is, um, Having spaces in our organizations where people are actually talking about this, right? So some examples have been where um, organizations are putting aside resources and time to have retreats where people are actually um, doing cleansing work, where they're doing work to um, talk about the trauma that they're enduring, right? Um, So having those kinds of opportunities to come together collectively um, has been important. Another piece has been where organizations are really clear that there needs to be uh, support for people who choose um, to have mental health care or alternative health care. Um, so, and setting aside resources or providing stipends so you can see a therapist or you can go to an acupuncturist or you can get whatever kind of healing that you need, right? Um, so, actually integrating that into the organization's budget. Um, A third is where um, there is actually an understanding that we can't keep going, right? And so organizations are integrating sabbaticals for their frontline staff. Um, They're cycling people in and out of situations um, that are Constantly in this place of urgent crisis response. Um, so those Great. are just some examples of what I've seen that organizations are, I think, starting to be more. Uh, Deepa, about.
1: that's a, a much more a much uh, more exciting answer than I was expecting. Actually, when I asked the question, I'm glad you're seeing. I really, that's really good. <laughs> I mean, I mean, there's more to go. Well,
0: I mean, it's not yeah. across the board. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely not across the board. And I think both philanthropy as well as um, organizations have to really grapple with this because what we're seeing, as you know, is a lot of burnout. Um, we're seeing revolving doors and people leaving constantly our movement spaces. and we're not able right. to recruit people because folks know that they don't want to end up like the executive director of the organization, right? And so I think that um, so I think that it's not something that I think is happening. It's not a trend. It's an exception when you see these sorts of um, choices being made. But hopefully the more we talk about it, uh, the more organizations will understand that this is just as important, right, as um, bringing on a coach for your yeah. leadership team, right? So that's what I hope. This is to. this is
1: great. This is great. Um, I, I was struck by the things that you delineated as parts of part of movement culture. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I have reactions or thoughts about a number of them, but the productivity one caught caught my attention right away. Because as I think about healing and restoration and and even evolution growing, I think about about um, some of the sacred medicine work that I'm involved in and, uh, and that I help mm. people through as one of the more powerful healing spaces that I'm a part of. But it's interesting because, um, for example, in Silicon Valley, um, you can have people uh, microdosing some of these medicines for sake of productivity, right? So, oh, it, wow. right? so it all kind of keeps looping back in. Like we are such a part of a, of, of a, of a thoroughly capitalist system, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that we take even the sacred, right? And try to make it serve um, our productivity. And wow, I have been, you know, you hear me talk a lot about, about networks a lot. And, and, uh, and it's a very interesting book that uh that i recently read about know comp- well, working with complexity decentralizing was actually a, a work a book called mm-hmm. team of teams by mm-hmm. stanley mccrystal like the general right of the special ops uh, oh, doing wow. the so of all people think about like a very hierarchical organization and system right
0: mm-hmm. and one of the
1: things he says a lot is we were the most efficient system right going back to like productivity but, uh, that, but not the most adaptable. Mm. And if we were to, to make adaptability central, we actually had to give up some of our attachment to efficiency, right, to linearity. Right. Um, and, and so there's something there for us too, right? Like there is a way in which mm-hmm. we got to meet a, a, a barrage of, of, of violence that's being done to our communities. Right. Um, but we need, we need to do it from an adaptive Right. We, uh, from an adaptive mm-hmm. as opposed to like um, industrial kind of yeah. big machine meets big machine stance, you know.
0: Or even reactive. You know, I think that's what we usually see, that we're just going around in circles from one crisis to another. Um, yeah, I mean, I think part of it is to be nimble, the ability to be nimble, the ability to be flexible, the ability to be adaptive, as you yeah. said. These are all, I think, traits and characteristics of organizations and movements that build power and that get us to the wins that we want. Um, but the, I mean, we've all heard this, right? The nonprofit industrial complex, um, the, the nonprofit um, sector has been captured by a lot of capitalist viewpoints and trends and frameworks. And so it's not surprising to me that people are really thinking about, I got to go from one campaign to another in the same way that folks think about making widgets after widgets after widgets. Um, It also, I think, really takes away creativity. Like the new ideas, the innovative ideas, right, that people have um, often don't come from the nonprofit sector as as they should, I think, because of this uh, pressure cooker that people are in around productivity and purity and all of that. Um, so I do think that we need a sea change in terms of our movement yeah. culture, in terms of leadership, in terms of, um, a set of values that actually, uh, should connect us back to our cause and our purpose. That's
1: right. That's right. Amen. I am right there with you on that. I, I can't let go of, um, your mention, uh, when we're talking about movement culture of, of purity and a relationship to wokeness
0: mm-hmm. and
1: the relationship to, um, uh, to personality culture, Um, it it, all seems to have um, a kind of shiny object quality to it, Uh, uh, something around, like, it it all feels very surface, right? It all feels kind of performative. Um, And and it therefore also feels brittle, right? I I sometimes Mm -hmm. think that, that, that we're performing wokeness because we are actually creatures of belonging. Mm-hmm. We want to belong. We want to know that we're in the right tribe. And so we are sending this, we're like shooting out these flares, right? So that we can be recognizable as being in the in group. Hey, I'm in, don't exile me. I need to belong here. And and then you start getting into like a competition for purity, right? Mm-hmm. And like the call out is a way of, of, of signaling that you're part of this thing, that you are not, you can't, you're not going to get, you're going to kick somebody out before you get kicked out actually, right? And so, so it's like um, there's like a belonging, a a need to belong, Mm -hmm. but it's actually quite brittle because everybody's terrified of being exiled by making the next, the next mistake, you know? And Mm -hmm. I think of, of the crisis of our culture at large, not just of the movement, of the culture at large, as a crisis of meaning, and a crisis of connection, right? right? And, and and I feel like the movements that will actually succeed, uh-huh. right, are not the movements that can be the purest and most woke, but the ones that can do the best job of helping people feel like they belong, that they're connected to each other, and that they're part of a story, mm-hmm. That is so much greater than ourselves or even this historical moment. Yeah. You know what I mean? I, I'm making a story a human yeah. story. Uh, no,
0: yeah. that I, I I think that's powerful, and I agree. And I think that's why the solidarity work is is really um, a place where some of that can be experimented with because it. You know, inevitably, when you're working in a coalition or when you're working with different communities, you have to be adaptive, you have to innovate and you have to be nimble and very flexible. And it's also um, a work that's super messy. Right. I mean, there's a lot of um, issues that come up around conflict and credit and control and all of that 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 are very ego focused. Um, So I think this ability to, as you said, um, bring people together to find that connection between human beings or communities is a critical underlying um, outcome of solidarity work. Um, But I also think that it happens when we have a process of self-reflection and self-awareness and self-analysis that oftentimes we don't take time to do, either as individuals or as organizations even. Um, and I think that's something that we really need to build into our movement uh, spaces as well.
1: It, it's, um, you're you're so uh, awesome to interview. You, you like keep giving me my my next question. I actually was thinking about this one next, which is, how do you, how, what are you doing? How do you resource yourself? How are you yeah. reflecting? Like, what is your practice? How do you stay?
0: Well, I have to tell you angry. that I think that for much of my time as an executive director, I didn't really engage in as much self-analysis and self-reflection as I could have or should have. And with that, I made a lot of mistakes. I made a lot of errors in judgment. I, um, I think that I uh, bought into and probably um, expressed a lot of these tendencies that we were talking about around purity and productivity and performance in particular. Um, and the reason that I didn't do it is not because I'm not a self-reflective person. I actually am very much so and always been so. But I think in that space where you feel that your communities are constantly under attack and you only have this like moment to make a difference, um, the space and time for take for doing that doesn't happen. That's why I'm such a big believer in things like sabbaticals and retreats and coaches and mentors, because I think that those will check those, those ways, those approaches, those people check us. And they, you know, put a mirror to us. Um, So now, now that I'm no longer an executive director, I've had more time to think about this, obviously, and reflect on myself and assess the mistakes I made. Um, But the way that I resource myself is through some of those practices. I do have a group of people who are not yes people, you know, but who actually say very clear things to me about, you know, I think you're, you're doing this out of FOMO or you're, you know, you're, uh, you don't have to be, you don't have to go there. You don't have to do this. You don't have to say that. What, what is your goal? What is your motivation? They press me to, um, ask myself that question or meaning mm-hmm. that you brought up. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have a group of people like that. And then I also have, um, coaches, nice. you know, that have been with me for some time that I lean on for wisdom. Um, and I also have a practice of journaling Beautiful. and, um, I pause now before I act or I try to. This doesn't always happen when I'm with my child, but it (laughs) happens when I try to have it happen when I'm dealing with issues or community, um, you know, co-leaders and the like to actually take a breath and pause.
1: Beautiful. Can you tell me, can you describe your journaling practice for us? How do you go about it?
0: Yeah. Um, a couple of different ways. I mean, I make it a point to, even if it's something very short, like words instead of a long narrative, um, to try to, um, uh, reflect on something that came up for me in a week that just didn't intuitively feel right. So it could be, um, something I said to someone on a call, it could be an email I send, you know, Um, or a response I got from someone else, just to take a little bit of time to reflect on it and write out my reactions um, to what it was. So that sort of journaling practice is very simple and it doesn't take a lot of time, but it just helps me to, again, take a breath, take a pause and look back. And then I assess it, right, with the lens of someone who has (laughs) been doing this work for some time. Um, Or I take it to my mentors or coaches if I need a little bit more analysis around it.
1: That's awesome. I'm a, I'm a huge fan uh, of writing as a practice. Uh, I've yeah. been, I do morning pages regularly, which is just stream of consciousness, you know. Yes. And I never look back actually, but it seems to organize uh, mm-hmm. my thought. I I feel like if I were to sit down, when I try to sit down to be as reflective as you're describing, sometimes I freeze. Like, oh, I got to remember this, and I got to remember mm. that, and I got to catch it right. But uh, the morning pages.
0: That's a great
1: idea. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I, I,
1: just like that and that you don't writing want to put too music. much
0: pressure on yourself right i
1: think that's the right. thing yeah 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 I, I i love it when when listeners kind of learn tips and tricks from from people like you. So, <laughs> so thank you i just have a couple more questions but um i want to ask you about facilitation because that is the game that i'm most passionate about it's what a lot of our listeners are intrigued by um what is like? What? How do I ask the question? Like the first one is like, what is your philosophy or your approach? And then, yeah, anything you want to share about your practice?
0: Yeah, well, I've learned a lot from you, Gibran, and watching you and oh. being in space with you. And I think that that's so important as one develops their practice, as you say, a facilitation to learn from others. Um, right. So I, I and, and you're one of those people that I've definitely learned from. Um, I think my practice is very much to be in service to the group and their yeah. goals, right? And so, to um, so I do a lot of prep work to understand um, what people in a particular space want to get out of that conversation. Um, I also do a some prep work in understanding who they are. You know, I look them up, I read their bios, I try to see if they've got a social media presence, what they've been thinking about recently and talking about. So I do do a little bit of work um, to understand people. So I don't walk in with a blank slate usually. Um, And then I think in the space, and this is something, I mean, I'm still learning, obviously, I don't have it all figured out. I tend to make sure that um, there's a lot of time taken in the beginning, because i feel like the first 2 hours of uh facilitation can set the tone for a successful um you know discussion or conversation and the first 2 hours are really about setting community agreements how are we mm-hmm. going to um be in connection to each other because if relationship building is really the core the cornerstone of any successful conversation or discussion how are we going to engage in that And who are we trying to be? Who are we aspiring to be as a group? You know, that we're not just individuals, we're here as a group. So setting those community agreements is important. And also, and I think something that I've learned from you is really focusing in on who we are as individuals. And I think you Mm -hmm. talk about that when you say um, accessing the heart element. Um, And I think that Mm -hmm. that's really important, you know, so that people feel seen. They feel like they can speak about themselves uh, in, in their fullness and their, um, bring their full selves into space. Um, so I really do really focus in on the first two to three hours. Um, and then I think it kind of can flow. You know, yeah. you're just there yeah. to be a guide, yeah, right? Um, and yeah. uh, to kind of synthesize what the conversations are. Oh
1: yeah! I'm glad you said that at the end. You are so good at bringing it all together. It, it is beautiful to watch you do that. I, I learned from you on that front for sure. It's like a, it's a very strong skill, very, very, very important. And people, people love it. People need it. So Thanks. It's big yeah. Service. Well, I
0: think it's a way for me to just organize. Also, I mean, it's probably the lawyer in me that comes out to be like, okay, what are the three points that came up here? You know, that folks need to remember and keep oh. in mind. Yeah. Um, But I really enjoy facilitating. I'm still learning how to be a strong facilitator. I think the things that I'm still learning about that I haven't fully figured out are, um, you know, dealing with conflict in a facilitation space. Mm -hmm. Um, Also kind of understanding when to intervene and when to not intervene. Um, Those kinds of situations, I think, are harder for me. And I'm still trying to figure out how best to, hold space so that it That's serves great.
1: everyone in those situations well steadfast on your journey i the last time i i was with you i, I definitely saw you rocking it so thank you I, I think you know one of the things i like and, and it comes it, like everything it comes with its complications but i do like that just it's just more understood as a field and a skill i mean i'm in all these rooms where people say i'm this and i'm a facilitator i'm that and i'm a facilitator and Mm. i think there's a net positive i think it's it's sometimes bad when like anybody's calling themselves a facilitator and and and, you know they they're not (laughs) i but um but i think overall it's a very powerful thing you know that people are like stepping into that and getting that the only way yeah. forward is together and there's going to be some, some of us that, that need to step into the role of, of helping that happen, helping us come together. Yeah.
0: Um, I absolutely so agree. Thank I you agree.
1: for taking it on and for doing it. So well. <laughs> I have two other, two other questions for you. Um, and they might feel like they're out of left field in a way. Um, but one of them is, you know, one of them is in this moment, right? Uh, this moment uh, let's call it a, a post me too moment right and uh, mm. and it's a moment in which uh, the the pain and the horror that women have been facing forever has kind of come out to the for the public glare right like it's hard to speak of it because you don't want to be like, oh now we this is hap- this has been happening but now we can't hide. We can't hide from it anymore, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I have this commitment to myself when I'm talking to to a powerful woman, as a man, as somebody that's a participant in patriarchy, somebody that that has caused harm, that has made these mistakes. Uh, I like to ask. I feel responsible to ask. Um, what do you think men should do, right? Mm-hmm. Like, what yeah, I don't even want to couch the question further. Like, what would you say to men listening to this that are just kind of trying or wanting to meet this moment? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, no, I appreciate that question. I think that part of it is to actually do, and I think this has been a theme in our conversation, do some of the self-work. hmm Right. Of, uh, of, of acknowledging and understanding the impact of patriarchy on oneself as a man, right. Um, how, uh, uh, how men actually reproduce it in their lives, um, whether it's in relationships, whether it's in, uh, being a parent to a daughter, whether it is in terms of their workplace and how they're treating their colleagues. Right. And so really kind of understanding how patriarchy, and this is the same, you know, because white people ask this question often, right? Like, how do I undo um, racism that I feel that I have reproduced? And I think part of it is that the self, the commitment that you mentioned and the self-work has to happen. And I think a lot of times women um, can't play that role, right? Because it takes a lot of emotional labor to be able to guide someone through that process. So I think having that commitment that you mentioned, doing the self-work. Also, I think um, coming together as men uh, to talk about this is important. I think another theme in our conversation has been community. And so there is self-work, but it can also be happening in tandem with others who are, have also made the commitment to, as you said, meet the moment, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so how are they doing it? What are they struggling with? What can you see in them? Um, how do you help one another? So I think that is extremely helpful as well and important. Um, and then the last thing I would say is that um, we need men to speak up, right? We need men to actually um, speak up when it is important for them to do so, so that it is not always women that have to meet the moment and speak up. Um, so when a man can be a disruptor, right, um, and this is even in the roles that in that ecosystem I mentioned, right? So if there's a way to, if you see something at work or if you hear something at work that is uh, disturbing you, right, to speak up and have a conversation with the person who might be biased in some way towards women. Um, if you see even, I, I, recently I noticed this where um, you might have heard that. Uh, the comedian Aziz Ansari is a South Asian man, right? Who was taken to task by someone um, last year for sexual harassment. And um, he came out recently talking about that situation and what, you know, that he's reflected on it and all of that and has like a show on Netflix. And I noticed that some South Asian men were taking him to task and I really appreciated it, right? By saying, well, you know, you're two minutes of reflection, are not sufficient, right? Um, when you're also like having a show on Netflix. So, so actually taking people to task if needed, stepping in and saying something, expressing solidarity um, for women in this moment is also really important. So those are the three kind of ways I think that um, men can really be playing a role right now to meet the moment in an authentic way.
1: Thank you for that, Deepa. That's very powerful and very helpful. Uh, I appreciate it. Yeah, really, really do. It's meaningful at a personal level for me.
0: Okay. Um,
1: the the last question I'll ask, and and then of course anything you want to leave us with, any pearls of wisdom or ways to find you. <laughs> um, it takes a it takes a little uh, it takes some some consent. It's a mild mild facilitation here, and uh, but what I like to do is. Invite my guests to do a little time traveling, right and to see if you can imagine yourself a generation from now and, and you know generally we're gonna call it 20 years. Um, and a lot of what you've worked on inside yourself or in the world that uh, has manifested. Some of it hasn't, you mm. know what I mean there's but but you're in the future and, and and you're in the future as somebody that that has continued to say yes, right that has gotten somewhere. And you don't have to describe that to me, right? You just got to get there. And then if you can come back in that shape and as that person that has had all of that experience, what advice would you have for yourself? And what advice would you have for us
0: Mm.
1: with that 20 years of wisdom embodied? That's a
0: fantastic exercise. I kind of want to stay in that future for a while. (laughs) i know time traveling in uh, 30 seconds um i think a couple of things i would say uh one is um to start now you know Mm -hmm. to not wait to start now so whatever is important whatever imbues your you and your soul with meaning and purpose um which you know right at the core you know it Um, to start it, to attend to it, to respond to it. I think that that's one of the biggest messages that I can see and hear from that future self. Um, And then a second is actually, um, uh, I I pictured actually myself in a a home that was very open where there was a table set with a lot of uh, people that would be coming in. And so what that means to me um, is a message around um, don't isolate ourselves, right? Find in in a time where I think in the society where disconnection is constant, right? Or we have this mirage of connection because we are on Twitter or Facebook or we're texting instead of calling each other or dropping in and seeing each other. There's a mirage of connection, but actually we're... Uh, More than ever, I think you know. In the words of that one book, uh, "Bowling Alone," right? We're we're doing everything alone, right? And so um, I think there's this sense of set the table, invite people in, and uh, there's enough for many, many people. So I think those are the two messages that that I would share for Mm. myself and for for others.
1: Thank you, thank you. That is so beautiful. The good, good wisdom, really good wisdom. I'm so welcoming. Um, Deepa, this has been an awesome conversation. I can't wait for people to hear it. Um, and I can't wait to keep working with you on stuff. Uh, yeah. Is there Same. anything else you want to say? Uh, anything we should know? Any? How do we find you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You?
0: So a couple of things. Um, I have a website, DeepaIyer.com. And on it, uh, folks can find some of the writing that I've mentioned and information about my book, which is called We Too Sing America. Um, I'm also on Twitter at DVIer, where you can find my disruptive tweets and (laughs) sometimes enlightening remarks. Um, And the solidarity work is on a website called solidarityis.org. Um, and I like you do a podcast on solidarity practice, and that is available to people on iTunes or any platform where you find uh, your podcast. And it's called Solidarity Is This.
1: Beautiful. Thank you so much for your precious time, um, and I just look forward to more with you. Many blessings. Same.
0: Thank you so much for having me on. This was wonderful.
1: It really, really has been.